come to you today. We thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to worship together in communion. We thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And as we turn our minds and our hearts and our attentions over to your worship and your word, I pray that you open up our hearts and our minds and help us to receive the message you need us to hear. It's in your wonderful and precious name we pray. Amen. I love reading all different kinds of books. Of course, the Bible, but many, many, many others. And I know I probably just shut half of you off. You're like, oh, reading, I can't stand reading books. I get it, that's okay. Well, I have this really terrible habit sometimes of, of picking, up a, picking up a book and reading about 50% of it and, and seeing another one that kind of catches my attention in my eyes and picking it up and starting it till eventually I'm reading five to 10 books at a time and I have to go back and start that one that I had already started like you know, a month ago over. And the good news is I'm, I'm picking up a lot of that information multiple times because I eventually will finish the book, but it may take me two or three times starting it to get there. Well, <clears throat> books recently that have particularly caught my attention have to do with understanding different generations, how we interact, and how we engage with each one. Now, I'm a millennial, and to some statisticians and scholars, we were born between the ages of 1980 and 2000. And so, of course, I've read countless books on my own generation, and of course, generations before me, books about those individuals as well. But right now, I have a particular interest in Gen Z, those born between the age of uh, the, the times of 2000 to 2018 and 19, who many right now are coming of age. They're being thrust into adulthood, although many, many individuals from previous generations probably wouldn't call it adulthood in the sense that they understand it. Nonetheless, it's important to understand each and every generation, what experiences have that each have had and how it has shaped their minds. And if we don't understand each of these generations, sharing the gospel message with each person will be astronomically harder. So I was reading a book entitled Meet Gen Z by James Emery White. And though I've highlighted so much of this book, it was one particular chapter that really caught my interest. The chapter entitled Rethinking Evangelism. I'm going to read an excerpt from this book, but first I need to give it a preface. James White is talking about how much more challenging it is to engage the current generations. And because of this, we have to take a completely different approach. In generations prior to even Gen X, which are those most likely born between 1965 and 1980, we make an assumption based on the information that we have that many, if not most, had at least somewhat of a general understanding of biblical terms here in America. They understood words like gospel and worship, God, Jesus. That's not the case anymore. When we share the gospel today, we have to rethink how we share it. And honestly, we're going to have to explain every single thing. We have to explain, explain every word, everything from music and the words in the music to messages and symbols and rituals. Why? Because our up-and-coming generations don't understand it. They weren't brought up in a society and culture in which these words were ingrained. 
The way in which we share the good news about Jesus is going to have to be tailored to each generation and each person. Let's just look, for example, uh, at what we're given in the Bible, specifically the New Testament. James White discussed the contrasting ways in which Peter and Paul and the book of Acts deliver messages. In Acts chapter 2, Peter delivers a very brief message that can be summed up in this way. You know about God. You understand creation, the fall, about Adam and Eve. You know about Moses and the laws given to him and that David was not referring to himself as the Messiah. You know about the coming Messiah that was promised and spoken about by the prophets. Well, that Messiah is Jesus, the same one you crucified, but who returned to life and began his church. What do you need to do about it? Repent and be baptized. Now think about that for a moment. How many repented, if you're familiar with this passage? About 3,000 people. That's incredible. Peter was speaking to a group of people who already understood the Old Testament and believed in the one true God and knew about a coming Messiah. Now contrast that to what Paul preached in Acts chapter 17 on Mars Hill. Paul was speaking to philosophers and idol worshipers and spiritual seekers in Athens. These people knew nothing about the Old Testament. They knew nothing about the one true God. Truth was relative. Worldviews were all over the place while countless gods were worshipped for a myriad of different things. Paul knew these people were not Jewish. So he didn't take the same approach that Peter did in Acts chapter 2. But looking around he found a touch point, a way in which he could relate to these people. Do you remember what he saw? Acts chapter 17, verse 22 through 23 says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This crazy culture was so polytheistic, meaning they worshiped so many gods and honestly worshiped anything, that the only thing they could all agree on was that they couldn't know anything for sure. So Paul piqued their curiosity by claiming that he could tell them the identity of this unknown God. And then Paul had to start at the very beginning. And I mean all the way at the beginning. The creation, Adam and Eve, and so on, to build the foundation for these individuals to even understand what a Messiah is and to understand the good news of Jesus. Paul knew that this was a different culture, and thus he had to take a different approach. So James White states this in his book, Me, Gen Z. This is precisely where we find ourselves today. We're not speaking to the God-fearing Jews in Jerusalem. We're standing on Mars Hill. And we need an Acts 17 mindset with an Acts 17 strategy, which means our primary cultural currency is going to need to be explanation. It's not enough to move from a King James version of the Bible to Eugene Peterson's uber-contemporary paraphrase, the message in our speaking. We have to begin by saying, this 
is a Bible. It has 66 books. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. It tells the story of us and God. And then we need to explain that story. James White stated that this idea was really brought forward to him while watching a movie. Now I can tell you, and you've probably heard me countless of times, that I relate to life a lot through the movies. I watch so many, I love them, and sometimes that's how I see the world. Well anyway, the movie in point that James White was called, that he watched was called Gravity. It's about an astronaut played by George Clooney and a medical engineer played by Sandra Bullock. These two work together after a major catastrophe destroys their space shuttle, stranding them in space in an orbit. And they must work together to survive and make it home. Now, I'm sorry if I give away any spoilers, but there's a moment in this movie that's so pivotal to the character that Sandra Bullock plays. She experiences a moment where she feels like she's going to die. And the character that she plays, Ryan Stone, utters these words. Oh, I'm going to die. I I know, we're all gonna die, everybody knows that. But I'm gonna die today. It's funny that, you know, to know. But the thing is, is is that I'm, I'm still scared. I'm really scared. No one will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. Will you mourn for me? Will you say a prayer for me, or, or is it too late? <sighs> I mean, I'd say one for myself, but I've never prayed in my life. So, but nobody ever taught me how. Nobody ever taught me how. I found those last few words deeply haunting. Now, I know she's a character, and this was a fictional movie, But the writers and the directors of of this film often portray experiences in their own lives or in the lives of others. In other words, these people in our world, we know that are saying this exact same thing. Nobody's really ever taught me how to pray. People who don't understand what prayer is or how to do it. But you and I know There are people out there who can teach them, but we have to do it. Well, last Sunday, I talked about this example that Jesus set before us. We're told in the beginning of the Gospel of John what Jesus was bringing, and that he was full of grace and truth. And what sits in the middle, holding all of this together, intention, it's love. And as we explain the gospel message to individuals, probably one of the most important aspects is explaining and understanding this amazing dynamic of grace and truth within the gospel. It's an important aspect because it's critical that we explain it and we get it right ourselves. It's at the heart. Unfortunately, though, where we fall on that line between grace and And truth as Christians is is shown in all of the stereotypes we see in our culture, that we see in movies, and and what we hear from other Christians about Christians and Christianity in our world. Truth without grace is judgment towards others, and grace without truth is a license to just do whatever you want. Only love and authentic Christ followers can hold these two in tension. 
Jesus demonstrated holding these two in tension. He accepted the woman at the well, even though promiscuity and scandal followed her there. Jesus accepted her first, grace. But then he followed this acceptance with the challenge to leave that life of promiscuity, truth. And we talked about last week, he did the same thing with the woman caught in adultery. He made it absolutely clear that unlike her accusers, he was not going to condemn her, grace. But he told her to turn from her adulterous ways, truth. Jesus didn't offer a free-for-all, feel-good Christianity, nor harsh judgment and condemnation. He instead lived in that tension of grace and truth with love for others. Now, I just mentioned that there are so many stereotypes in our world and in movies and TV that people actually have about Christians and Christianity. And it often falls one way or the other on this band of grace and truth, either moving towards grace without truth or truth without grace. And if we use this example of the woman caught in adultery, we could say, if we leaned more on one side or more on the other, it would be like we stated, neither do I condemn you, or go and sin no more. And so if you take a look at the landscape of our culture and even many of our churches, we can see that many churches and Christians lean, lean really heavily towards grace without truth, almost as if we want to hide the fact that church history had a strong judgmental and condemnatory nature. So sometimes we feel as if we just have to offset that somehow by leaning as far away from it as we can. This was called lukewarm in the book of Revelation, which is anything but convicting. Being a Christ follower, on the other hand, is about conviction and passion and life change. We don't run to sin, but rather we work hard to change our bad habits as we emulate Christ. So what are some of the things that pull us to one side or the other on this grace-truth rubber band? What are the things that keep us from living in that tension of grace and truth with love for others? And if we define them, what can we do about it? How can we combat them or fight against them so that we can do a better job of living in this tension? Well, I wanna focus on just a few of those things. For starters, we need to combat the curse of knowledge. One of the biggest reasons that we as Christians don't explain things to other people is because of this idea of the curse of knowledge. Anybody sort of familiar with this idea? Well, there was an experiment conducted at Stanford University in 1990. Those conducting the study asked participants to tap out the beats of a song. Another individual would then have to guess that song. So here, I want you to try it with me. You ready? I'm gonna tap out the beats of the song and I want you to see if you can guess what song I'm playing. All right, what song am I playing? If you were here on Thursday, you can't say. <laughs> All right, what do you got? Anybody know what, what song I was playing? Happy birthday, man. Good, 
good, good ear, good ear. Yes, I was tapping out the beats of the song, Happy Birthday. And all of you were thinking that exact same thing, right? All right, here's another song for you. We got two more, right? All right, what song? This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine. All right, one more. One more. Gotta warm up my hands. May I guess that one? All right, I really like video games, so that was the classic Super Mario theme. And I'm sure you were all thinking that exact same thing, right? Well, here's what it was so interesting about that study. The person guessing the song was only able to guess the song about 2.5% of the time. That would be like getting three songs out of 120. Now, what was really interesting about this study was, was not that they couldn't guess the song, but rather what the lead researcher, Elizabeth Newton, discovered is that the person tapping out the song thought that those that were listening we're getting the songs correct at least 90% of the time. So what's the difference? Well, the tapper was hearing the song in their head, and when they tapped the song, they couldn't even imagine that the other person was not able to hear the song in the background. Thus, she also used this term, the curse of knowledge, which defined means a cognitive bias that occurs when an individual Communicating with another individual unknowingly assumes that the others have the background to understand. As Christians, we often forget what it's like not being a follower of Jesus. Now, I know I've had this issue, and I often have to work hard to undo this mindset. I need to remember what it was like not being with Jesus, so that I can better understand others. And then I'm able to show them the love and the grace that is needed. Here's the real problem, especially when we're gathered as Christ's church. We become so used to talking to others who already have made the decision to follow Christ that we lose our sense of how to talk to those who don't. Think about words such as worship and trinity Revelation, sin, communion, or the Lord's Supper, and even the word grace. A person who wasn't raised in the church probably does not have as strong of an understanding or concept of these things. So we must work really hard to explain everything. Secondly, we need to combat our own lack of empathy. This honestly goes hand in hand with the curse of knowledge. We often don't even bother to place ourselves in the shoes of others. We just assume that they should know things and we we don't think about their needs or concerns, what their dreams are, how others might treat them, how they were raised, or even how they feel about God and the church. Every person has experiences. They have their own history, their own beliefs, friends that share those beliefs, family, and more. Think of this as having depth. I mean, we can look on the outside and we can make judgments, which we often do, but only because we don't have the full story. 
People make judgments of us, and we think that's unfair. Why? Well, because they don't know us. People are just not that simple. We're complex. We have to get to know each other. Think about Paul and the Acts 17 approach. He didn't just go in preaching the gospel message, talking about Moses and David, assuming that the people in the Areopagus knew who they even were. He observed his surroundings, got to know the people by talking with them, and then used something extremely familiar to them to make a connection point. Thirdly, we need to combat our closed-door attitudes. I'll admit to you that I'm, I'm not here to just, start, to just really start calling people out, but to make myself extremely vulnerable to you by admitting to you that I'm guilty of all of these things. And they're all something that I need to work on too. We're all growing as Christians. And there are Christians who know their stuff. Followers who know the Bible, attend all the Bible studies they can, maybe even lead groups. Unfortunately, though, there are some of these Christians, again, not all, but there are some, who tend to close the doors on people and shut others out of their lives who don't fit their own model. Think of the curse of knowledge exponentially heightened. They know others don't know Christ like they do, so they just don't get involved with them until they reach their level. This type of mentality can create a church culture that only allows a narrow amount of individuals to participate in their community. And I'm not saying these individuals mean to do this or even know they're doing it, but it often comes from putting too strong of an emphasis on gaining knowledge without finding that middle tension of grace and truth and honestly just loving those that Jesus has called us to love. And it's because of this that many Christians just don't have the knowledge to think critically or to talk comfortably with other people who are just not like them. The emphasis on the knowledge is is only in pursuit of their own holiness rather than taking what they've learned and with eagerness seeking out opportunities to share it with others, to lead others to Jesus using what they have learned. Faith without works, as the writer James puts in the New Testament. And it's because of this closed-door approach that we miss the opportunities to talk with others and to get to know them on a deeper level. Sometimes it's often portrayed as just pushing others away and hurting them. Lastly, we need to combat our own lack of biblical understanding. On the other side of the spectrum is the individual who just doesn't know the Bible very well. In fact, this is often a dirty little secret. Many Christians just don't pick up the Bible, let alone read anything from it more than a few times a month, if that. Sure, we've heard the familiar passages and we can probably recite them, but it's because of this lack of understanding that people feel unprepared or not ready to have the conversations with people who just don't know Jesus. I'm guilty of this. I know I've been here, and many still are. And in many ways, I still am. I know that I need to be in God's word more. But when I'm not, it makes me and others afraid that we just don't have the answers to the tough questions. Or we're not able to back up our positions with the Bible because we don't know where it's at. Then there's another type of this lack of biblical understanding. 
Some individuals know the Bible inside and out, but their own lack of understanding comes from not knowing how to use the knowledge. Wisdom. They can recite passages, but they don't understand what it means or how to properly use it, taking verses out of context to hurt individuals who disagree with them. And this lack of understanding misses the mark completely because it shows no love to those with different worldviews. There is no grace, there is no truth, because there is no love. We all need to be reminded and understand that we can be correct in our beliefs, but completely wrong in how we communicate them to others. So now we've outlined some things that we need to combat. But how do we accomplish this? Well, some of them really don't need an explanation. If you have a lack of empathy for others, you need to surround yourself with others from different worldviews and just get to know them on a deeper level. Know their history, their past, their beliefs, their family. Get to know them. A lack of biblical understanding should be met with increased time in the Bible if you don't know it. Make a habit of reading more than a few verses a day. Read a chapter or two or even read an entire book. But don't leave it at that. Pray to God for understanding. Ask that God allow the Holy Spirit to renew your mind and enlighten you to the meaning of the passage. And it's, if it's a lack of understanding, ask God to help you apply what you've learned. And if you're still struggling, find someone who knows how to do that. Observe them. If you're afraid to be with individuals who hold different worldviews than you, go with somebody else. Preferably with someone who is comfortable and knows how to live in that tension of grace and truth. Combating the curse of knowledge is a completely different and difficult concept. We build up habits, and those habits can be extremely hard to break. We can't unlearn what we have already learned. We hope and pray that we understand and know things like Trinity, Revelation, sin, communion, and even grace. But when we're talking to someone who doesn't know Jesus, it might be helpful to not use these terms unless we are ready to take the time to explain them in great detail and explain to them why we use those words. Even explaining something as small as scripture references, it might be helpful to say things like, this comes from the biography account of Jesus written by John, one of the four biographies of Jesus, as opposed to this passage is from the Gospel of John. We need to apply the Bible's teachings to all aspects of our lives, especially the most difficult challenges and choices and struggles. And when we do this, we then have that opportunity to demonstrate to others what a follower of Christ would do or think and explain how it's always the better route to take. Our lives should be marked by the changes that we have made and this is why the book of James is my favorite book of the Bible. James doesn't sugarcoat things. He says them like they are. And it's not hard to interpret what he means. His book is a practical guide to living as a spiritual person, different from this world around us. Some find it harsh or difficult to teach and preach on, but I, on the other hand, find it so helpful and practical and to the point. 
Tough love, as some may call it. Being able to explain everything means taking that extra step. For example, Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, went as far as to explain the meaning of some of the words that they were singing in a worship song. Before singing a song with the word, hallelujah, they would show an introductory video explaining what that word means so that people had a better idea and meaning and context for what they were singing. Going that extra step. I want to leave you with one last piece of information. As I mentioned earlier, I love reading and studying effective ways of engaging and reaching each generation. And while reading about Gen Z, I encountered this staggering statistic. According to the National Center of Biotechnology Information in the research, the actual attention span for a person has dropped from 12 seconds in 2000 to just 8.25 seconds in 2015. 8.25 seconds. That's our attention span now. James White puts it this way in his book, Meet Gen Z. The percent of teens who forget major details of close friends and relatives, 25%. Percent of, time, of people who forget their own birthdays from time to time, 7%. Average number of times per hour an office worker checks their email inbox, 30. Average length watched of a single internet video, 2.7 minutes. Bear in mind, most videos are longer than 2.7 minutes. Percent of internet page views that last less than four seconds, 17. Percent of internet page views that last more than 10 minutes, four. Percent of words read on web pages with 111 words or less, 49. Percent of words read on an average 593 word web page, 28. What that shows us, again, is that our attention spans are extremely small. Whatever we are attempting to convey, much less explain, needs to communicate, needs to be communicated more frequently in shorter bursts of what we're going to call snackable content. Why? Because members of these up-and-coming generations are the ultimate consumers of snack media. They communicate in bite sizes. Once something does gain their attention, and is deemed worthy of their time, they become intensely committed and focused. That's the good news. And here's what that means for us as Christ followers, trying to engage each and every one of these generations upcoming. We can still engage them, and on an extremely deep level, with the truth. The only downside is that we have 8.25 seconds to do it. We have 8.25 seconds to get past filters and, and each person's ability to sort through enormous amounts of data. Now, I told you I wanted to leave you with that piece of information, and I do so not to scare you, but to just remind you of how quickly our world is changing. Rethinking the way we demonstrate love through grace and truth by sharing the gospel message is both a process and an event with that process heavily pointed towards explaining everything. And not just that, we have to convey it in quick and engaging manner in order to get past the engagement filters of most people. We have to combat the things holding us back from living in this tension of grace and truth to get to know individuals so that we can then share Jesus with them. 
That's what Jesus did. He engaged with others. Another great example that we discussed today, think of Paul. He engaged the minds of the philosophers in just a few minutes by sparking their interest in naming their unknown God. It was only then that he got past their filter and was able to share the good news. It's a lot of food for thought today, isn't it? But I want you to think, and I want you to reflect upon what are the things that are holding you back. Are you holding yourself back? Are you your own worst critic keeping you from feeling the love and the grace and the truth offered to you by Jesus? If you're ready to make that decision to follow Jesus and grow closer to him and and share this good news with others and be baptized or even want to understand what baptism is, I want to get to know you. I don't want to share with you what that means. Now is the time. Don't hesitate. Do so as we stand and sing our song of invitation.